0: chapter 9a of the sheik this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by matt ferrard the sheik by em hull chapter 9a it was evening when diana opened drowsy and heavy eyes a bitter taste in her mouth from the effects of the drug that Saint-Hubert had given her. Everything had been laid out in readiness for her waking, with the little touches that were characteristic of Zela's handiwork. But the Arab girl herself was not visible. The lamp was lighted, and Diana turned her head languidly, still half confused, to look at the clock beside her. The tiny chime sounded seven times, and with a rush of recollection she leapt up. More than twelve hours since she had knelt beside him after drinking the coffee that Raoul had given her. She guessed what he had done and tried to be grateful, but the thought of what might have happened during the twelve hours she had lain like a log was horrible. She dressed with feverish haste, and went into the outer room. It was filled with Arabs, many of whom she did not recognize, and she knew that they must belong to the reinforcements that Ahmed ben Hassan had sent for. Two, who seemed, from their appearance, to be petty chiefs, were talking in low tones to saint Hubert, who looked worn and tired. The rest were grouped silently about the divan, looking at the still unconscious sheikh. The restlessness and delirium of the morning had passed, and been succeeded by a death-like stupor. Nearest to him stood Yusuf. His usual swaggering self-assurance changed into an attitude of deepest dejection, and his eyes, that were fixed on Ahmed Ben Hassan's face, were like those of a whipped dog, gradually, The tent emptied until only Yusuf was left, and, at last, reluctantly, he too went, stopping at the entrance to speak to Saint-Hubert, who had just taken leave of the two headmen. The Vacant came back, bringing a chair for Diana, and put her into it with gentle masterfulness. "'Sit down,' he said, almost gruffly. "'You look like a ghost.' She looked up at him reproachfully. "'You drunk that coffee, Raoul. If he had died today while I was asleep, I don't think I could ever have forgiven you.' "'My dear child,' he said gravely, "'you don't know how near you were to collapse. If I had not made you sleep, I should have had three patients on my hands instead of two. "'I... Am very ungrateful she murmured with a tremulous little smile saint hubert brought a chair for himself and dropped into it wearily he felt very tired the strain of the past twenty-four hours had been tremendous he had a very real fear that was fast growing into a conviction that his skill was going to prove unequal to save his friend's life and beside that anxiety and his physical fatigue. He had fought a bitter fight with himself all day, tearing out of his heart the envy and jealousy that filled it, and locking away his love as a secret treasure to be hidden for always. His devotion to Ahmed bin Hassan had survived the greatest test that could be imposed upon it, and had emerged from the trial strengthened and refined. WITH EVERY TRACE OF SELF-OBLITERATED. IT HAD BEEN THE HARDEST STRUGGLE OF HIS LIFE, BUT IT WAS OVER NOW, AND ALL THE BITTERNESS HAD PASSED, LEAVING ONLY A PASSIONATE DESIRE FOR DIANA'S HAPPINESS THAT OUTWEIGHED EVERY OTHER THOUGHT. ONE SPARK OF COMFORT REMAINED. HE WOULD NOT BE QUITE USELESS. HIS HELP AND SYMPATHY WOULD BE NECESSARY TO HER, AND EVEN FOR THAT HE WAS GRATEFUL. He looked across the divan at her, and the change that the last few hours had made in her struck him painfully. The alert, vigorous boyishness that had been so characteristic was gone. Her slim figure, drooping listlessly in the big chair, her white face with the new marks of suffering on it, and her wide eyes burning with dumb misery, were all purely womanly and yet, though he resented the change, he wished it could have gone further. The restraint she was putting on herself was unnatural. She asked no questions, and she shed no tears. He could have borne them both easier than the silent anguish of her face. He feared the results of the emotion she was repressing so rigidly. There was a long silence. Henri came in, once and Diana roused herself to ask for Gaston and then relapsed into silent watchfulness again she sighed once a long quivering sigh that nearly broke Saint-Hubert's heart he rose and bent over the sheik with his fingers on his wrist and as he laid the nerveless hand down again she leaned nearer and covered it with her own His hand is so big for an Arab's, she said softly, like a thought spoken aloud unconsciously. He is not an Arab, replied Saint-Hubert, with sudden impatient vehemence. He is English. Diana looked up at him swiftly, with utter bewilderment in her startled eyes. I don't understand, she faltered. He hates the English. Quan Men, he is the son of one of your English peers. His mother was a Spanish lady. Many of the old noble Spanish families have Moorish blood in their veins. The characteristics crop up even after centuries. It is so with Ahmed, and his life in the desert has accentuated it. Has he never told you anything about himself? She shook her head. Sometimes I have wondered, she said reflectively. He seemed different from the others, and there has been so much that I could never understand. But then again, there were times when he seemed pure Arab, she added in a lower voice and with an involuntary shiver. You ought to know, said Saint-Hubert. Yes, he went on firmly as she tried to interrupt him it is due to you it will explain so many things i will take the responsibility his father is the earl of glencarrel but i know him said diana wonderingly he was a friend of my father i saw him only a few months ago when aubrey and i passed through paris he is such a magnificent-looking old man so fierce and sad Oh, now I know why that awful frown of Ahmed's has always seemed so familiar. Lord Glencarrel frowns like that. It is the famous Carrol scowl. But I still don't understand. She looked from Saint-Hubert to the unconscious man on the divan, and back to Saint-Hubert with a new trouble growing in her eyes. I had better tell you the whole story said Raoul, dropping back into his chair. Thirty-six years ago, my father, who was as great a wanderer as I am, was staying here in the desert with his friend, the Sheikh Ahmed ben Hassan. A chance acquaintance, some years before, over the purchase of some horses, had ripened into a very intimate friendship that was unusual between a Frenchman and an Arab. The Sheikh was a wonderful man, very enlightened, with strong european tendencies as a matter of pure fact he was not too much in sympathy with the french form of administration as carried on in algeria but he was not affected sufficiently by it to make any real difficulty the territory that he regarded as his own lay too much to the south and he kept his large and scattered tribe in too good order for any interference to be possible He was unmarried, and the women of his own race seemed to have no attraction for him. He was wrapped up in his tribe and his horses. My father had come for a stay of some months. My mother had recently died, and he wanted to get away from everything that reminded him of her. One evening, shortly after his arrival at the camp, a party of the men, who had been absent for some days in the north, on the chief's affairs arrived bringing with them a woman whom they had found wandering in the desert how she had got there or from what direction she had come they did not know they were nearer civilization than ahmed ben hassan's camp at the time but with true native tendency to avoid responsibility they thought that the disposal of her was a matter more for their sheikh than themselves she could give no account of herself, as, owing to the effects of the sun or other causes, she was temporarily out of her mind. Arabs are very gentle with anyone who is mad. Allah has touched them. She was taken to the tent of one of the headmen, whose wife looked after her. For some days it was doubtful whether she would recover, and her condition was aggravated by the fact that she was shortly to become a mother. She did regain her senses after a time, however, but nothing could make her say anything about herself, and questions reduced her to terrible fits of hysterical crying, which were prejudicial in her state of health. She seemed calmest when she was left quite alone, but even then she started at the slightest sound, and the headman's wife reported that she would lie for hours on her bed, crying quietly to herself. She was quite young, seemingly not more than nineteen or twenty. From her accents, my father decided that she was Spanish. But she would admit nothing, not even her nationality. In due course of time, the child was born a boy. Saint-Hubert paused a moment and nodded towards the shape. Even after the child's birth, she refused to give any account of herself. In that, she was as firm as a rock. In everything else, she was the frailest, gentlest little creature imaginable. She was very small and slender, with quantities of soft dark hair and beautiful great dark eyes that looked like a frightened fawns. I have heard my father describe her many times, and I have seen the watercolour sketch made of her. He was quite an amateur. Ahmed has it locked away somewhere. She nearly died when the baby was born, and she never recovered her strength. She made no complaint, and never spoke of herself, and seemed quite content, as long as the child was with her. She was a child herself in a great number of ways. It never seemed to occur to her that there was anything odd in her continued residence in the Sheikh's camp. She had a tent, and servants of her own, and the Hetman's wife was devoted to her. So were the rest of the camp, for that matter. There was an element of the mysterious in her advent that had taken hold of the superstitious Arabs, and the baby was looked upon as something more than human, and was adored by all the tribe. The sheikh himself, who had never looked twice at a woman before in his life, became passionately attached to her, My father says that he has never seen a man so madly in love as Ahmed Ben Hassan was with the strange white girl who had come so oddly into his life. He repeatedly implored her to marry him, and even my father, who has a horror of mixed marriages, was impelled to admit that any woman might have been happy with Ahmed Ben Hassan. She would not consent though she would give no reason for her refusal and the mystery that surrounded her remained as insolvable during the two years that she lived after the baby's birth as it had been on the day of her arrival and her refusal made no difference with the sheik his devotion was wonderful when she died my father was again visiting the camp she knew that she was dying and a few days before the end she told them her pitiful little history she was the only daughter of one of the oldest noble houses in spain as poor as they were noble and she had been married when she was seventeen to lord glencarrel who had seen her with her parents in nice she had been married without any regard to her own wishes and though she grew to love her husband she was always afraid of him he had a terrible temper that was very easily roused and in those days he also periodically drank a great deal more than was good for him and when under the influence of drink behaved more like a devil than a man she was very young and gauche failing often to do what was required of her from mere nervousness he was exigent and made no allowance for her youth and inexperience and her life was one long torture and yet In spite of it all, she loved him. Even in speaking of it, she insisted that the fault was hers, that the trouble was due to her stupidity, glossing over his brutality. In fact, it was not from her, but from inquiries that he made after her death, that my father learned most of what her life had been. It seems that Lord Glencarrel had taken her to Algiers, and had wished to make a trip into the desert. He had been drinking heavily and she did not dare to upset his plans by refusing to go with him or even by telling him how soon her child was going to be born so she went with him and one night something happened what she would not say but my father says he has never seen such a look of terror on any woman's face as she hurried over that part of her story whatever it was She waited until the camp was asleep, and then slipped out into the desert, mad with fear, with no thought beyond a blind instinct of flight that drove her panic-stricken to face any danger, rather than remain and undergo the misery she was flying from. She remembered hurrying onward, terrified by every sound and every shadow, frightened even by the blazing stars that seemed to be watching her, and pointing out the way she had taken, until her mind was numb from utter weariness, and she remembered nothing more until she awoke in the headman's tent. She had been afraid to say who she was, lest she should be sent back to her husband. And with the birth of the child she became more than ever determined to preserve her secret. The boy should be spared the suffering she had herself endured. He should not be allowed to fall into the hands of his father, to be at his mercy when the periodical drinking fits made him a very fiend of cruelty she made my father and the sheikh swear that not until the boy grew to manhood should lord glencarrol be told of his existence she wrote a letter for her husband which she gave into my father's keeping together with her wedding-ring which had an inscription inside of it and a miniature of glencarrol which she had "'worn, always hidden, away from sight. "'She was very contrite with the Sheikh, "'begging his forgiveness for the sorrow she had caused him "'and for keeping from his knowledge the fact that she was not free. "'She loved her husband loyally to the end, "'but the last few days that she lived, "'the Sheikh's devotion seemed to wake an answering tenderness in her heart. "'She was happiness when he was with her, "'and she died in his arms with his kisses on her lips.' She left her boy in his keeping, and Ahmed Ben Hassan adopted him formally, and made him his heir, giving him his own name, the hereditary name that the sheikh of the tribe has borne for generations. His word was law amongst his people, and there was no thought of any opposition to his wishes. Further, the child was considered lucky, and his choice of successor was received with unanimous delight. All the passionate love that the sheikh had for the mother was transferred to the son. He idolized him, and the boy grew up believing that Ahmed bin Hassan was his own father. With the traits he had inherited from his mother's people, and with his desert upbringing he looked, as he does now, pure Arab. When he was fifteen, my father induced the sheikh to send him to Paris to be educated. With his own European tendencies, the sheikh had wished it also, but he could not bring himself to part with the boy before, and it was a tremendous wrench to let him go when he did. It was then that I first saw him. I was eighteen at the time, and had just begun my military training but as my regiment was stationed in Paris, I was able to be at home a good deal. He was such a handsome, high-spirited lad. Men mature very young in the desert, and in many ways he was a great deal older than I was, in spite of my three years' seniority. But, of course, in other ways, he was a perfect child. He had a fiendish temper, and resented any check on his natural lawless inclinations. He loathed the restrictions that had to be put upon him, and he hated the restraint of town life. He had been accustomed to having his own way in nearly everything, and to the constant adulation of the tribesmen, and he was not prepared to give to anybody else the obedience that he gave willingly to the Sheikh. There were some very stormy times, and I never admired my father in anything so much as his handling of that young savage. His escapades were nerve-wracking, and his bouillieu led him into endless scrapes. The only threat that reduced him to order was that of sending him home to the sheik in disgrace. He would promise amendment and take himself off to the bois to work off his superfluous energy on my father's horses until he broke out again. But in spite of his temper and his diableries, he was very lovable, and everybody liked him. After a year with us in Paris, my father, always mindful of his real nationality, sent him for two years to a tutor in England, where I had myself been. The tutor was an exceptional man, used to dealing with exceptional boys, and Ahmed did very well with him. I don't mean that he did much work. That he evaded skillfully and spent most of his time hunting and shooting. The only thing that he studied at all seriously was veterinary surgery, which he knew would be useful to him with his own horses, and in which his tutor was level-headed enough to encourage him. Then, at the end of two years, he came back to us for another year, He had gone to the desert every summer for his holidays, and on each occasion the sheikh let him return with greater reluctance. He was always afraid that the call of civilization would be too much for his adopted son, especially as he grew older. But although Ahmed had changed very much from the wild desert lad who had first come to us, and had developed into a polished man of the world, Speaking French and English as fluently as Arabic, with plenty of means to amuse himself in any way that he wished, for the Sheikh was very rich and kept him lavishly supplied with money and Though in that last year he was with us, he was courted and fated in a way that would have turned most people's heads, he was always secretly longing for the time when he would go back to the desert. It was the desert. Not civilization that called loudest to him. He loved the life and he adored the man whom he thought was his father. To be the son and heir of Ahmed ben Hassan seemed to him to be the highest pinnacle that any man's ambition could reach. He was perfectly indifferent to the flattery and attention that his money and his good looks brought him. My father entertained very largely and Ahmed became the fashion, la belle arabe, he was called, and he enjoyed a successful, which bored him to extinction. And, at the end of the year, having written to the sheikh for permission to go home, he shook the dust of Paris off his feet and went back to the desert. I went with him. It was my first visit, and the first time that I had experienced Ahmed en prince. I had never seen him in any... European clothes, and I got quite a shock when I came up on deck the morning that we arrived at Oran, and found an Arab of the Arabs waiting for me. The robes and a complete change of carriage and expression that seemed to go with them altered him curiously, and I hardly recognized him. Some of his men were waiting for him on the quay, and their excitement was extraordinary. I realized from the deference and attention that the French officials paid to Ahmed the position that the old sheikh had made for himself, and the high esteem in which he was held. We spent the rest of the day in arranging for the considerable baggage that he had brought with him to be forwarded by the camel caravan that had been sent for the purpose, and also in business for the sheikh in al We spent the night in a villa on the outskirts of the town belonging to an old Arab, who entertained us lavishly, and who spent the evening congratulating Ahmed heartily on having escaped from the clutches of the odious French, by no means abashed when Ahmed pointed out that there was an odious Frenchman present, for he dismissed me with a gesture that conveyed that my nationality was my misfortune, and not my fault, and in impressing on him the necessity of immediately acquiring a wife or two, and settling down for the good of the tribe, all this in the intervals of drinking coffee, listening to the most monotonous native music, and watching barbaric dances. There was one particularly well-made dancing girl that the old man tried to induce Ahmed to buy, and he made a show of bargaining for her, not from any real interest he took in her but merely to see the effect that it would have on me but i refused to be drawn and as my head was reeling with the atmosphere i escaped to bed and left him still bargaining we started early next morning and were joined a few miles out of the town by a big detachment of followers the excitement of the day before was repeated on a very much larger scale it was a novel experience for me and i can hardly describe my feelings in the midst of that yelling horde of men galloping wildly round us and firing their rifles until it seemed hardly possible that some accident would not happen it was ahmed's attitude that impressed me most he took it all quietly as his due and when he had had enough of it stopped it with a peremptory authority that was instantly obeyed, and apologized for the exuberant behavior of his children. It was a new Ahmed to me. The boy I had known for four years seemed suddenly transformed into a man who made me feel very young. In France, I had naturally always rather played elder brother. But here, Ahmed was on his own ground, and the roles seemed likely to be reversed. The arrival at the sheikh's camp was everything that the most lavish scenic producer could have wished. Though I had heard of it both from my father and Ahmed, I was not quite prepared for the splendor with which the sheikh surrounded himself. With the eastern luxury was mingled many European adjuncts that added much to the comfort of camp life. The meeting between the sheikh and Ahmed was most touching. I had a very happy time, and left with regret. End of chapter 9a